0: For a machine to run smoothly and predictably, its parts must be standard and hence replaceable. Well, folks, we're back. We promised you we would be. And true to our word, here we are with a second consecutive week of CivCast. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, I'm Dan. My co-host is Vouter, And today, we're going to talk about a bunch of different things. We have a lot of things scheduled. Um, We're going to touch on the CivCast challenge. We're going to talk a little bit about... Um, what we would do, how our approach would be to try to procure the most gold per turn possible. I have some ideas, and let's just say maybe they don't involve Mapuche or Genghis Khan. Uh, we have some discussion we're going to have on map types and our approaches to the different maps and some of the new maps that we saw with the Rise and Fall expansion. We're going to talk about a couple of the uh, Rise and Fall additions, some of the mechanics that we didn't talk about last week, including emergencies, And uh, the Alliance system, the updates on that. Um, But we're going to start it off with uh, a segment that Vauter and I discussed off-camera last week that we think you guys are going to like. And it's a segment that we're going to go a little bit more in-depth on uh, an individual sieve on every week. We're going to play a game during the week with that sieve, and we're going to report back with our findings on that sieve and our findings on that game. And conveniently enough, the uh, segment is going to be called Report Back. So... We're probably going to start with that, but first things first, how rude of me, Voucher. How are you doing, buddy? Hey, Dan.
1: I'm doing great.
0: Good, good. And this segment, this uh, report back, um, I think this is, I don't know what your thoughts are, but I think it's a really neat way to try and get people uh, a little bit more of a strategic and in-depth view of one specific SIV every week. So you want to maybe talk a little bit to people about the idea behind this uh, segment and then the SIV that we did this week?
1: Yeah, sounds good.
0: Okay, so um, the idea, Vouter, behind this segment. Um, you're the you're the strategy guy, the guy with a bit more of the strategic knowledge and know-how than my. Uh, I'm not going to say lazy or noob ass <laughs> because I do know the game pretty well and I do play it pretty well. But you certainly have a few more hours into it than I do, and you have a bit more um, of a, a keen eye for the strategic elements. Let's just say I so am a minmaxer what- in heart. Okay, maybe that's the word I should be looking for there. So what's what do you think um, about the Civ that we did this week? The Civ that we focused on was Nubia this week and Aminatore. So what was your approach to it and uh, what's your experience with her as a Civ altogether?
1: Um, I actually really like Nubia. Nubia has a really strong early game with their Patati archers. Uh, which mm-hmm. are extremely powerful, especially combined with their ability to get plus 50% production uh, towards range units, and all ranged units gain 50% extra combat experience, which means mm-hmm. in the early game you can push out a couple of slingers, use your goal to upgrade them to potassi archers, and deal with some pesky neighbor that might be around, which was li- exactly what I did in my game, actually. Um, I started in a pretty empty location except for the fact that i had a very very annoying and aggressive neighbor next to me who also had the nerf to forward settle me and of course who else but shaka
0: oh boy good yes. times <laughs>
1: Um, and I don't know if you have played a game as Shaka yet. Um, in the beginning, he is not that amazing, but once he gets towards his impy, he can be an unstoppable force. So I decided to take matters into my own hand. And the moment I unlocked my Patatsi archers and had my army set up a little bit, I decided to take that uh, forward-settled city uh, from him and nice. uh, started to bash quite hard against all his units and uh, the extra movement of the patati archer is is so useful in this it means you can place your archers in the perfect location to just strike away at them Uh, since it was early game he didn't have his walls up and Mm -hmm. uh, i was able to decimate his armies and cities relatively quickly which gave myself a really nice upgraded army with a lot of promotions on my archers um and uh, yeah, that was a really, really good start. After that, uh, things actually quieted down uh, a lot, and I just focused more on going for a cultural win. I had my okay. religion set up. I had some. Uh, uh, I had actually, by luck, got two relics from uh, tribal huts, so I went with nice. a religion a little bit more focused on that. I didn't want to go Good. for the religion victory itself, but just decided to run on the the, the culture and um, tourism early game from that, and afterwards just go for the um, uh, the museum and um, just grab all the artifacts around the world, and eventually succeeded in winning a cultural victory in this game.
0: Awesome! Congratulations. Um, that's culture is maybe not the first. I guess, direction that people would think to look for uh, Nubia. Now, I in my game, I was, I mean, right off the bat, I kind of had a similar approach to yours. The Patati Archer is insanely strong. So I got the stats up here right now. It does have a higher production cost, slightly. But it has a higher combat strength, 17 versus 15. Higher range strength, 30 versus 25. And the one thing I noticed that was probably the most significant and most beneficial to me in my game is it has higher movement, 3 versus 2. Um, now if you combine all that with uh, Nubia's Tassetti ability now Tassetti gives uh, plus 50% production towards ranged units and all ranged units gain 50% combat experience all of that really kind of combines into this maelstrom of just beastliness in my experience with the Patati. so I had actually no one who was like directly on my doorstep and the first two neighbors I encountered were uh, Pedro the Second. or sorry P- Pedro II, Philip II uh, in Spain, and Cleopatra in Egypt, actually, was just kind of convenient for the achievement I was aiming for, which I'll talk about in a sec. Um, but what I actually saw that kind of made my eyes widen up a little bit more was three uh, relatively peaceful city states on my border. I had Hong Kong, Brussels, and uh, I think Preslav was the other one. Uh, Preslav is militaristic, but the other two are not. And so pretty early on, I rolled uh, the Patati over those cities, like army of about, I want to say, I think it was six patati and one uh, Warrior. And I was able to subjugate those three city-states pretty quickly. And that gave me a significant spread across the continent I was on. Um, I was playing a Fractal Map. And uh, it felt to me early on like it was a bit of a smaller continent. I kind of noticed that uh, north, south, east, west were kind of walled off in, in an islands format. And so I had these... To not necessarily militaristic sieves on my border. Uh, but when I got Hong Kong and Brussels, I was brushing right up against uh, Philip II, and he got kind of rattled about that. He told me about all the different kingdoms he owns and about how I was a heathen to God and blah, blah, blah. And so we engaged, um, and I managed to take his two frontline cities, again, primarily with um, an ar- army of patati archers at this point. And I guess... The one thing that I really noticed was the movement and was the fact that these these guys can they can cover a lot of ground I guess in um, one turn and I was able to really kind of maneuver them around uh, a pretty flat battlefield in a way that you know I could move um, out of range and yet still uh, combat his warriors or his I think he had like crossbowmen by that point and it was just really convenient and um i guess you know not having played nubia before this maybe i didn't realize how just kind of synergistic um is with the patati but to me um to make a long story even longer um (laughs) i I i very much leaned in towards domination um and i wasn't successful ultimately i uh I, while I was fighting Philip, uh, Cleopatra engaged on me as well. And it just kind of got to that point in a save game where I was losing more than I was building. And it got a little frustrating. And so I decided um, that I would just, I would re-roll. And so I re-rolled and I didn't get quite as far into the second playthrough. But, you know, to me, playing Nubia here was more about testing out the early time period. Because that's certainly when they're strong. And um, I was impressed. I, I really did enjoy the game. And I really did... Um, lean in particularly to that unique unit, which I think is one of the strongest in the game.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. I I really love them. And it also, like, playing Nubia also changes up my initial civic tree uh, focus a little bit. Normally, I always go first to foreign trade, but Mm -hmm. with with her, I always go for craftsmanship so I can get that uh, Agoghe military policy, which gives another additional 50% production towards ancient and classical uh, range units, uh, also melee and anti-cavalry. But with that, you get an extra 100% production towards uh, range units, and yes. with that, I just spam out uh, a, a lot of slingers that I can upgrade towards the uh, the Patati Archer later on. And uh, I don't know yep. if you also did it, but I went for the, uh, the first government was the oligarchy for not additional yes. 20% uh, extra unit experience. And uh, th- that just makes them so powerful. They upgrade super quickly, get them to that level where they can shoot twice and they're just a beast.
0: Oh, absolutely. That's exactly what I did. I went with the um, increased range unit bonus production. I went with oligarchy. Um, I was pumping out, I think, Patati archers every three turns in the middle of this fight with Philip. And it was really convenient because I was looking at my other units and, you know, you generally I I like to diversify my army a little bit. But, you know, Warrior is going to take me seven turns. Patati is going to take me three turns. I know which direction I'm going to go. Yeah. Um, So leaning into it is really a great way to play nubia i think um one thing i'm curious about too i noticed that i got my um my combat experience uh levels up a lot quicker with the patatis and since you know both of us it sounds like we were playing more of an aggressive uh angle to this more aggressive approach which upgrades do you tend to go with for your ranged units and for your archers in the event that you are playing more of an aggressive game if you're kind of looking at that uh upgrades tree
1: So, what I always do is go for the ones that give me more damage against units. Um, Mm -hmm. They are, by far, in my opinion, the the ones that you need. And uh, let me see what those are. Uh, It's uh, at the Aerostorm, which uh, you start with uh, Volley, which gives plus 5 range strength versus land units. Then you go to Aerostorm, which gives another plus 7 range strength versus land and naval units. Um, Mm -hmm. then uh, you can have two uh, different promotions. Um, I always go with suppression so that my archers also have a zone of control so that I can siege the city with my archers as well. Because when I'm playing as Nubia, I don't have a lot of other melee units around that can siege a city. So with this, I will also be able to um, use them to make deceding city not heal which is super useful and after that i go for expert marksman for additional attack per turn
0: yeah um i went with emplacement i didn't go with suppression i guess that's probably not min maxing and that might not be smart but one thing that i was thinking about as i was playing actually there's a uh, card a red card um that gives a significant amount of um like range strength if defending a city or range strength if garrisoned in a city i can't remember what it's called but as i was playing through this too i was looking at you know if you were to go in the other direction you go garrison which gives you plus 10 combat strength when occupying a district or fort um and then you later on go in placement plus 10 combat strength and defending i guess when defending versus city attacks is actually more when you are sieging though right that would be like a that would be like a mid game yeah but I guess if you were to combine that first ability maybe with um, arrow storm and I guess maybe suppression, you could actually pull off a pretty effective uh, defensive force as well, which is something that could have benefited me when Cleopatra was sieging my city. But yeah, I think the natural way to go and the way I went when I was in the midst of the attack was volley arrow storm emplacement um, and then expert marksman. Um Okay, uh, stepping back from the Patati, which we both agree is a fantastic unit, uh, Nubian Pyramid. So, uh, the improvement that unlocks the Nubian Pyramid, it it goes with uh, masonry, I believe, and it must be built on desert, desert hills, or floodplains. Plus one faith, receives additional yields from adjacent districts. Plus one food if adjacent to a city center. Uh, For all of the districts that award adjacency bonuses, plus one of the appropriate yield if that district is adjacent. And of course, conveniently, it syncs up. Again, just really good job with the synchronicity here um, on the part of Firaxis, because this goes well with amenator's unique ability, Kandike of Moroe, which is plus 20% production towards all districts, rising to 40% if there's a Nubian pyramid adjacent to the city center. So Vauter, what's your experience with that kind of really convenient and really synergistic relationship between the pyramid and uh, her ability?
1: It's not the worst, but uh, my game that I played, um, I didn't have much uh, options to build it. I think I had a couple of places where I theoretically could have built it. Uh, one of which was next to my city center. But beyond yeah. that, in all my other cities, uh, there was just no desert to build it upon or a desert hill or a floodplain, except for one small patch of deserts, which was completely in the middle of my like empire. There were no rivers nearby, so it wasn't really a good place for, uh, building anything, uh, like that. So I didn't build it that much and, um, it can be okay, but in, general it's not that amazing um i only would like build it if you could surround it with a lot of districts for example from a couple of cities because of that plus one uh the uh, jc bonus that the nubian pyramid uh, gives off um next to the city center i don't see that much use in it it gives, it gives another 20% production towards all districts but it's not that amazing that I would want that. There are a lot of things that usually also consent for uh, placement next to your city center. Uh, for example your district get and the JCC bonus from sitting next to your city center. And I usually find that more important than having a Nubian pyramid there. Uh, I'd rather have a Nubian pyramid one tile over, but the Nubian pyramids, the fact that they have to be on desert hills, desert or floodplains makes them a lot harder to actually place in places where you want them. And therefore yeah. I kind of forgo building them usually because it, it just isn't good enough where I can place them.
0: So I guess that does have a lot to do then with um, the map you roll. And interestingly enough for me, my first two cities, my capital of Meroe and my second city of Nuri, I'm just looking at it right now. I'm, I I managed to luck into um, really good placement for the desert. So I built up a bunch of Nubian pyramids around the city center. And I guess if you're not um, leaning into a uh, religious victory, there's no inherent and really kind of readily made bonus that that gives you. The food bonus is pretty negligible. Um, the adjacency bonuses, though, I, you could probably lean heavily into the adjacency bonuses that they provide, right? I think that that would be a, a good way to play it.
1: Yeah, the adjacency bonus is, is really useful, but the the sheer fact that you are so locked by uh, having to place them on a desert, desert, or floodplain usually makes it that there are other places where I can build uh, my, uh, my districts that are even better even though there might be one or maybe even two nubian pyramids uh somewhere off in a swath of desert um usually i can i can find other places that actually give me a better bonus uh than where the nubian pyramids would be
0: now i wanted to talk about so we're gonna Every time we do this uh, report back segment, we are going to talk a little bit about, and we are going to angle towards maybe trying to get some of these STEAM achievements um, for each of these sieves. Now, I don't know about you, man. I'm not a big STEAM achievement hunter. I don't really care. I don't think people (laughs) necessarily look at each other's, although funny enough, I was looking at your achievements (laughs) the other night. We were just talking about that off camera. I was looking at Valtor's uh, sieve and Hearts of Iron achievements. It's pretty impressive. But um, I do think it's kind of fun. I mean, the achievements, Praxis has done a good job. Um, much like Paradox did, uh, if I remember, with EU4, uh, kind of creating some really specific and really fun um, achievements to go for. There's two uh, that you can play on a regular game with New- Nubia, and I definitely was set up to go for both. I had the chance to go for both, but these are two really hard achievements. And funny enough, actually, one of them is, according to the Steam community statistics, one of nubia's achievements the 25th dynasty is the lowest achieved achievement in the entirety of civ 6 which i find that to be remarkable it's at the very bottom
1: it is a very um, hard achievement to get the, the accomplished. yeah the circumstances so, are so specific
0: yeah exactly So I'll read them out to the people, and then you could talk a little bit about the circumstances and how you might approach this. So the one with pyramids, Pyramid Scheme, as Nubia, earns six different adjacency bonuses on a Nubian pyramid. And I did try for this, but I don't think I approached it the right way. And I think I only managed to get three at max in my main city. So I'd be curious how you might approach that in the right situation. And then the one that's the lowest, like the lowest amount, uh, lowest percentile of accomplishment is the achievement the 25th Dynasty, playing as Nubia, liberate the original Egyptian capital in a liberation war with the capital's conqueror. That's four different kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Four different requirements for you to actually get that achievement. And it is just circumstantially almost impossible. So maybe you could talk about how you would approach both of those, Vouter, and, and I can tell you a little bit about my experience with 25th dynasty, because I was hopeful. I had Egypt on my doorstep. I was hopeful that I might have a chance to get towards that, but it just, it it never cropped up for me. And I can't imagine it would very often for people.
1: So, yeah, uh, let's start with that achievement because it, it, there is a reason why it's so hard. Uh, I thought uh, I specifically put Egypt in the game so that I might try for the achievement uh, because we discussed it before that we want to see if we can get the specific achievements for the specific um, uh, civilization that we're playing. And I thought actually that, that things were looking really well for me. Um, Egypt was next to Scythia which is quite the aggressive uh, civilization. And they have been in a war a couple of times. Unfortunately for me, Egypt was the one that was winning all the time. Mm. And that is part of why it is so difficult. Um, You need to have Egypt in the game. You need to have Egypt to be in a position where she is next to somebody that actually wants to conquer her capital. And that person also has to be able to conquer the capital, and only then you can try to take that capital back in a war of liberation. Um, but getting to those requirements, in my game, that was never actually an option. Um, Egypt was in a war, but she was crushing it, which only made her stronger, which meant that nobody else was going to make a try at it, and at the end of the game, um, nobody was coming close to actually fighting Egypt anymore at all. Um, so that is what Probably makes the achievement such like uh, difficult to get for a lot of people, um, unless you reroll a lot of times and you can't see it in the beginning if it will work or not. You can set things up. You can set things up on a smaller map uh, so that you have a very warlike civilization. You and mm. Egypt and perhaps another warlike civilizations for the maximum chance that Egypt will be attacked. But even then, it. it things are so so difficult to to orchestrate yourself that you just need to have a lot of luck and you can't just keep re-rolling the same game because you need to play quite deep into the game before you can see if this is actually an option or not and that that's yeah, what it. really makes it difficult.
0: yeah you got to play deep into the game to even get the ability to unlock uh, liberation war too if i remember correctly so there's uh, another thing, too, I wanted to mention. It's kind of cool. The 25th Dynasty, I was reading about it a little bit. I love the historical impetus behind some of these achievements. And in these games, I find the devs love to put kind of this historical irony or this historical story behind <laughs> these achievements. The 25th Dynasty of Egypt was, in fact, a Nubian dynasty. It took over from various foreign rulers in Egypt at the time. So I thought that was a neat little uh, touch to add in there. But you're absolutely right. Like, I had Egypt on in my game, on my doorstep. Uh, but it, it, you know, it requires, as you're saying, her to be engaged and her to be engaged in a deferential position and then to be subjugated by a superior power. And not only that, that requires then you to be able to engage that power and to conquer what will probably be a very difficult city to take over, which will be doubly difficult if the civ that has conquered her is as strong as would be required for them to conquer another civ's capital. So, yeah, it's... There's a reason it's the lowest percentage accomplishment, I think, in the game. Um, it's It has like four prerequisites for it, and then it requires a significant achievement from you. So, hey, guys, if you by any chance accomplish this one, um, share a screenshot on the subreddits, uh, reddit.com slash r slash shiftcast. Let us know how you did it because, I don't know, man, that one seems pretty tough. Uh, what about Pyramid Scheme, Vouter? I, I tried for Pyramid Scheme, but in the end it got a little frustrating and I kind of dropped it. How might you approach getting that accomplishment
1: well it really depends if i was achievement hunting like some people do i'm not an achievement hunter i find them interesting and if i get them i'm like oh nice and that's Mm -hmm. it i i really don't don't put too much stock in it um but if i were achievement hunting i really wanted to get this achievement i don't think i have it um i would you need to have a place where there is a desert or desert hill with six styles surrounding it which are empty and then just place two cities in suboptimal locations if necessary, so that both of those cities can place three districts each uh, surrounding them. Doesn't matter if they have bad adjacency bonus or not, just place any district, doesn't matter what district, and you get the achievement. But if you play mm-hmm. like a normal game, and uh, uh, where you want this naturally to come up, that is going to be really, really difficult. Uh, the circumstances of the map role needs to be really powerful, and the districts that you build there will depend so much on, on what you need in the game itself. Like, it, it's really difficult to get it naturally, I think, and most people who go for it probably went for a specific, like, oh, if I can like build another three districts here, then I get this achievement, so let's build these districts even though they're not in the best location ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: No, fair enough. It's I, I don't know. It, when I was trying to approach it, it was it just seemed like there was a lot of logistics around it. It requires a lot of land, a lot of land that you don't already use. And I'm sure you know well into the time when you're able to build all these different districts, most of the land surrounding the pyramids is going to be taken. So then it requires you taking land perhaps that's being worked by a farm or um, a resource away and putting a district there or it, anyway, the point is it also has a low steam achievement percentage at only 0.1%. And I don't know if that's just because people aren't playing Nubia very much, but um it, this one was this one I think is less circumstantial. It has fewer prerequisites, but it's still difficult. It is. It's it's yeah. still not one that that And I don't achievement hunt either, but I think it's kind of just a fun objective to give yourself, particularly for us when we're doing this uh, report back segment. And I just, I I find that these two specific normal game achievements are two of the toughest ones, man. And uh, as I'm looking through this list here, I see some other ones that are kind of more funny and a little bit easier to accomplish. I I don't see that for Nubia. I see two really difficult achievements. So folks, if you manage to pull this one off or either of these two achievements off, let us know post in the subreddit um tell us how you did it because i don't know man uh, i'm i'm pretty stumped by it so any other thoughts on newbie anything you think we missed out on voucher i think we covered them pretty extensively i think you'd probably agree this is this is a strong sieve, but oh, um, in your tears to ter- in your tears perhaps not god tier.
1: I don't think it's got here mostly because after the, or the early game after the pathetic archers are gone and she loses a little bit of strength just because the extra movement on the, uh, her archers is really really powerful but you still will end up with a couple of uh, very highly uh, promoted um, range units, which can propel you into a very very favorable position later on in the game if you want to go domination or just protect yourself from enemy fire and stuff like that. Not gut tier, probably A tier still though. Their, their uh, early game is just really good. And early game is where you snowball, so...
0: Mm-hmm. What about in comparison to two of these post-vanilla um, game sieves that have come out Uh, That are a bit more militaristically focused in the early game. How would you compare a Minotaur to, say, uh, Genghis Khan and the Mongolians or, uh, say, Shaka and the Zulu?
1: Well, if you put them in like a cage match or anything like that, she will probably have to drop on Shaka the way I did. Because Shaka Mm -hmm. only really gets his militaristic power later on in the game when he can get his uh, impies and everything like that. Nikanda is a great uh, district and everything like that. But uh, the MP is really where it's at for him. Um, Compared to Genghis Khan, for example, Genghis Khan is uh, really, really powerful. And I think, especially because it's cavalry versus uh, archers, I think Genghis might have to drop on her in this one. It's just a little
0: bit there, I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I really I really like, and we can talk about this in a later episode, I really like Genghis and the Mongolians in this game, but I do definitely think that Minotaur would probably fall under his sword pretty easily. I'd be interested to see if someone did do one of those kind of early game militaristic um, pit battles between four to six of the early games who would come out on top. Um, all right. This was actually a super fun segment, buddy. I, I really enjoy this. Oh, yeah, me too. That's great. Um, Let's let's right now. Why don't you give us a sip? I know you talked earlier about wanting to do the next report back with a rise and fall sip. So who would you like us to do this week?
1: Well, since we talked a little bit uh, about them, and uh, especially because I encountered them really well, and um, we could do Shaka because that's an interesting one. But my personal preference uh, probably goes towards Tamar, because I find her really interesting and probably one of the most powerful sifs in the expansion. Last week, we talked about how I really like Korea, but Georgia with Tamar is insanely powerful because uh, when you get a Golden Age, you can still make the dedications and get probably another Golden Age going quite soon. So she's more of a passive kind of person where you can play a more like defensive gameplay and Shaka is more of offensive gameplay so do you feel like conquering the worlds or do you want to pacify the world
0: <laughs> do you want to have just a nice gentle soft silent game or do you want to have a loud one uh hey look let's do the Tamar game our friend vector cap posted in the subreddit about how uh he or she thinks i can vector cat he or she i apologize um whether they think that vector cat is uh or vector cat whether georgia is uh god tier status so let's do that let's go for that one and let's see if we can uh, quietly peacefully gently maybe with a faith-based victory uh take over the world that way so we will do a report back this week with tamar and georgia and if you guys want to uh, join us. I think what we'll do and what I'll do after this game is I'll set up a subreddit thread for that. So we can have an in-depth discussion on each of the sieves that we uh, do our report backs on. We'll do it for, we'll run the week's report back for the sieve that we did um, that we are doing this week. So we will run um, a Georgia thread this week and we'll just skip over the the Nubia thread. So in that thread, feel free guys to share your experiences with Tamara and with Georgia and uh, hopefully it's just a fun way to get you guys to look more in depth at a Civ that you may or may not have uh, worked on much in the same way that the CivCast challenge has done so in the past. Sounds good. All right. Um, Valtor, why don't you get in depth on the two uh, rise and fall mechanics that we didn't really discuss last week, uh, alliances and emergencies, and why don't we start with the new alliance system, your experience and insight with that.
1: Okay, so the new alliance system is a bit different because you have five different alliances and you level up uh, your alliances with this specific sieve, uh through time because only time can make a true alliance stronger. Also trade routes because trade is awesome. And
0: <laughs> also trade routes.
1: Yeah, that's, that's that's how it works, right? You trade with people, they yeah. like you more because you give them stuff.
0: exactly.
1: Um, I'm not sure what I feel, how I feel about these alliance systems. Um, when I run trade routes, I usually run domestic trade routes because I still think they are more powerful. Even though this expansion really, really did its best to try to push you towards going um, towards international trade routes as well. One way is this alliance system. If you have an alliance, Mm. an economic, a cultural, a scientific or religious alliance, you will gain bonuses based upon that alliance for international trade routes towards that civilization. There is also a policy card that will make your trade routes towards allies better. So they really want you to go and trade with your allies instead of just only run domestic trade routes, which is, I think, a good direction. Um, but having these alliances so separate also means that an alliance is not necessarily what you think an alliance might mean having an alliance with somebody doesn't mean that when you go to war with somebody automatically they also go to war with you even if you have a militaristic alliance and Mm -hmm. that is something that I'm not fully happy with Um, it's okay I like this system it has potential but I wish it was something more in-depth, not just like, oh, yeah, we signed an economic agreement and that makes our trade routes to each other better. Uh, I I want something more of, like, actual, like, a NATO or Warsaw Pact, you know? I want something like that in the alliance system.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that feeds into a more complex diplomatic system, which they're likely to roll out in a future expansion. Um, I agree, you know, I... I do like the fact that there is a level of complexity to the alliances. So the five, just to remind people, the five types of alliances, it's it's cut and dry. It's what you'd expect. Religious alliance, military alliance, economic alliance, cultural alliance, and research. And they do have different levels, right? Level one, two, and three of yep. the types of alliances. Yep. And some of these bonuses are pretty neat. Um, my experience uh, is generally with the research alliances. And, you know, level one helps. Plus two science from a trade route to your ally, plus one science from trade routes from your allies it's noticeable um and then you get later on level two of the research one is every 20 turns you unlock a eureka for a tech that you and your ally have not researched that helps you move along the tree a little quickly but of course as is as i find is usually the case with random tech pops it tends to be one that you're not really interested in
1: other um, one you're just about to get next turn by building an extra mine, uh, mine nitro, for example
0: yeah, exactly. I'll th- oh, I got the Eureka for that. Okay, well, I was just going to get it myself anyway, but thanks, game. Yeah. Uh, and then level three, allies receive accelerated research on techs that have been discovered by one sieve, but not the other, and when researching the same tech currently. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's it, there's some complexity to it, but not the level of what you're saying. And we have talked in past episodes, I think like last summer, about how we want there to be Um, a level of you know connective diplomacy and international organizations and supranational agreements and stuff like that um nato warsaw pact un whatever that might be and i think we could probably both agree we would also like it to be a bit more complex and a bit more difficult to win than the relatively easy and simple system of civ 5 right
1: oh yeah definitely
0: yeah so Alliances overall, um, you know, they're they're nice and and having them and there is something that I interact with on a, on a game-by-game basis, but I would agree with you that there needs definitely to be a little bit more there. Um, emergencies. So tell the folks a little bit about emergencies. I don't know, I find they don't crop up or pop up very often. So if we have someone who might be a bit newer to the game listening, they may may not even have encountered an emergency yet. So maybe share with people what those are and your experience with them.
1: So an emergency can trigger when a specific event happens. It depends on what age you are in and what the other players are doing. An emergency can, for example, trigger when uh, another civilization converts a holy city of another civilization, which could be yourself, for example. At that point, an emergency can trigger and the whole world that knows that civilization can respond on it, because that civilization is a threat towards the entire world, since it can actually win the game uh, at Mm -hmm. that point. And... um, what the game does is it will give you an incentive to join the emergency together with all the others that uh, can so that you together might form a united front against that one civilization. And if you succeed in the objective, for example, of the uh, conversion of the holy city, you need to convert it back to its original religion and make sure Mm. that it doesn't get converted uh, again. And if you succeed, you get a bonus. I believe that uh, it is for this specific emergency, you get a relic or something like that, and usually a bit of gold. But there is also another side to it. For every civilization that joins into the emergency, and if that coalition doesn't succeed, the person who was emergency declared against will get a bonus and some gold based upon how many civilizations actually joined the emergency against them. So in the religious capital conversion case, again, uh, what will happen is that all cities will get a little bit of extra pressure towards the uh, the one who, who was the emergency declared against. His religion will get pressure in all other cities. Um, mm-hmm. the emergencies don't pop up often. And that's something I've noticed as well. Yeah. And when they do pop up, I am not so inclined usually to go and join one. And I've seen the AI also being very like, yeah, I don't really want to go with those emergencies, which usually leads to the fact if I join one, then I am the only one who's actually joining in the emergency, which is fine. I will get all the bonuses, but also it's like, yeah, hey guys, maybe I could have used a little bit of help on this one. Uh, An emergency can also trigger, for example, when a city-state gets conquered. So if you go and conquer with all your pathetic archers all the city-states in your uh, neighborhood, the world might see you as a warmonger and a threat to the free cities in the world and actually go ahead and uh, say, like, we want to take back the city, which is then their objective. They want to liberate that city-state. But doing that by yourself can be a really big problem, especially if that is a civilization who's on the other side of the world. And even if somebody decides to join in that might be close, you are still very much dependent on the AI to actually do the work for you as well, which also leads to the fact that if you do it in a multiplayer game, for example, people can join emergencies and let Or somebody else do all the work but still get the benefit out of it so it's a really weird system that doesn't give you a reward based on how much you participated for example but just literally like now you you decided to join the emergency you did nothing here's your reward because somebody else succeeded and that's something I really don't like about the system Um, I like the idea of it to bring the world together in like a World War II style where you had like uh, the allies together with the Soviet Union, which were unlikely allies and stuff like that. But a big threat brought them together and pushed uh, the Germans uh, away. And after that, everybody went back to their default state of we hate each other. That is a great idea. And I love that in it. But right now, the way it works, it has not worked out well enough. I would like to see something in which uh, how much you participated in the emergency would also constitute how much you get rewarded for it, for example.
0: Absolutely. It, it should be proportional. I mean, I, I did all the, the one time I had um, an emergency that was actually pretty significant was a city state based emergency. And I did all the heavy lifting the two other people in the alliance with me did nothing. They just sat on the sidelines and I went and liberated the city state. I think there was two city states. actually. I think there's there two. In it? I feel like there's two in that game. I can remember at least one. And I didn't want to share with them. They did nothing. They sent like one archer. And I sent like my entire army to liberate this city-state. It definitely did feel disproportional. I guess historically, you know, there, <laughs> there's impetus to that too. But I do think you're right in the sense that there could be something there that feels a little bit more historically like um, something that we see IRL throughout history. But I also think that, you know, there needs to be more than just, I guess there needs to be emergencies that are more than just concurrent with the victory types. You know what I mean? Like the fact that there's military emergency, there's a nuclear emergency, religious, city state, and betrayal. I think you can go even further than that. I think that you know you don't necessarily need it to, to be something that runs directly concurrent with um, you know, a victory type or a sieve that's on its way to victory, maybe if a government leans too heavily into a specific kind of um, yeah, maybe maybe if there's one like fascist government um, on the map or one communist government on the map, and uh, the rest of you are the more kind of freedom loving governments, maybe you can join together in an anti-communist emergency if we're looking for historical impetus there or something like that, you know, add a bit more complexity to it. Might be fun, might be a good idea. I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that, I guess what I'm asking is, do you think there's another level they can go to with these?
1: I think so but I think before they can do that they need to include more of the diplomacy with the the governments because right now it doesn't really matter that much what government you are there is a penalty if you're not the same government for opinion but that's about it um there yeah. is no real like uh the that the fascist hates the soviets and stuff like that in the game and the other way around there there's no real struggle between like the ideologies uh, as you had for example in civ 5 uh, with the ideologies that the, the ideology you chose made a really big impact on who was your friend who and who wasn't uh you completely Like, don't see that here. It's a completely numbers game, and like, what do I need right now, and what is the best choice for me to have a government? Um, If they implement something similar like that, then definitely I would love to see something like that, where you actually pitch the world against each other in some kind of, like, pseudo-Cold War or something like that. Uh, which can lead to emergencies that can trigger a hot war eventually or just keep the Cold War going. You can get the spy system involved even and stuff like that because it's a beautiful thing that happened a lot in, in the Cold War, which you can implement in the game. Make it like you have an emergency where you have to sabotage the production site in City X within the coming next turns or uh, to receive a, a reward make it a little bit more involved and stuff like that but ma- maybe that's yeah. just me that wants kind of an event system and, and stuff like that into the game where some random things can happen which boons and, and and penalties and stuff like that but i would love to see something like that in the game and have something like that involved
0: that's that sounds like you're uh your paradox-loving side coming out there, the EU4 random event system, which uh, could really make or break your entire game. I think that would be an interesting inclusion in Civ. I do think that the... They Go have ahead, done it
1: in cf 4 though and, and I really loved it in yeah. c 4. Uh, it was amazing and uh, in Civ 5 I played a lot of uh, Vox Popoli, uh or uh, as it was called the Community Balance Patch and they also implemented uh, an event system like that. In c 4 you literally had quests and everything like that and if you, for example, you needed to build six uh, smitties and if you had the Ironworks you could get a special reward as well. I love that. It it just like gave you a kind of a direction you could go to and um it, it made the game semi random in those kinds of factors, which the real world does as well, you know. You can't predict everybody everything down to the number.
0: Yeah. No, fair enough. I think I know that for me, in my experience of the Paradox games, the spontaneity of it and the randomness of losing out or the randomness of something negative happening can be kind of frustrating. But I think that, you know, that's just an element of playing video games. I think that that makes you adapt. And if the game becomes a little harder, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing.
1: I mean, the expansion is called Rise and Fall, right? Yeah, exactly.
0: Exactly. There needs to be a fall there. It's not called Rise and Rise. Like Our last episode last week
1: was called Rise and Rise.
0: (laughs) Expansion is not called Rise and Rise, folks. So there needs to be a fall at some point, even if the Dark Ages are still kind of sneakily good sometimes in this game.
1: Yeah, that's the thing. Um, the, the fall that they propose in this game is something that people actually go to on purpose because it can be a really good boon. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah exactly. People get stoked on the Dark Ages. I actually deliberately went to a Dark Age in this last game here with uh, with Nubia. Um, all right. All right. I think we, we went really long there a little bit on our discussions. Um, we're going to angle towards the historical moment and the strategic moment. Um, really quickly, uh, the Civcast Challenge for this month, it's on their subreddit, guys. I'd encourage you to take a look at it. Render into Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Pendant is suggesting you go to explore how much gold per turn you can get. If you play a game with whatever civ you want, what is the max gold per turn that you can achieve? Really quickly, voucher which sieve would you angle towards if you were doing this? Uh,
1: Probably uh, England. Because probably England, uh, yeah. Uh, Well, they they got nerfed in the patch, I'm not sure actually anymore. Yeah, but probably England still. They have a really good setup for uh, a lot of extra gold. Uh, Before it was better because they got extra trade routes, but the Royal Navy Dockyard still has a potential to gain a lot of extra gold.
0: Okay, and I don't know which Civ I'd go with necessarily, but I do know that there better be some cattle around me because I have to get Great Zimbabwe, and (laughs) I feel like you have to get Big Ben as well in that situation, right? Those two wonders are must-haves, I think, for a max GPT game.
1: Oh, yeah, they're really, really good. I mean, Big Ben is usually just more for cash flow itself, but yeah. Yeah.
0: Cool. All right, let's angle in towards our uh, minutes here. Why don't you take it away with your strategic moment first, my friend, and then I'll talk about the Battle of Bannockburn.
1: So my strategic session, uh, strategy tip for this week has to do with the governors, and um, this is going to be one that is considered an exploit by many. But I kind of kind of feel like it is interesting to talk about it because it's a game mechanic that uh, has been talked about a lot, and it's going to get nerfed or. or Something is going to change, but it has to do with the Magnus. And the Magnus, is, he has an ability that gives you plus 100% on harvesting a resource in your city that he's um, settled in. Now, what is the exploit? People use things like, for example, the ability of Nubia to have um, extra uh, production towards uh, range units. Um ...to kind of abuse this. Because if you harvest, for example, a forest, ...you get an X amount of production from it. It will be modified by Nubia's ability... Uh, ...that you get plus 50% production towards uh, uh, ranged units, ...for example, a Slinger. And therefore you will get 150% uh, extra yields... ...from the forest that you just harvested. Well, most likely this will help you finish the archer... ...that you just were building and then you will have some production overflow now the production overflow will still be modified by that bonus that you got because that was the bonus that you started with so in this way you can actually boost yourself to a higher level of uh extra production than you normally could And that is kind of an exploit. For example, if you go with the the Lemus military policy, you will give plus 100% production towards defensive buildings. So you're building a wall, you have the Magnus in your city, you chop down a forest with Lemus active, you get 200% from that chop extra, and your production overflow will be high, and you decide, well... All of a sudden, I can build the great library now in two turns because I have huge amounts of production oh. overflow and you can Absolutely. just build the great library in two turns. Um, like I said, a lot of people consider this kind of an exploit. Um, this is something that Firaxis has announced in their video about the upcoming spring patch. They were going to change. Um, how and what exactly wasn't announced, but it is an interesting thing to play around with and um, even if the Magnus' ability goes away it is still an interesting thing to keep in mind because even without the Magnus itself, there this kind of still works because this is inherently how the game works itself um, yeah. and, and they haven't said that they wanted to change the game mechanics itself so if you are building some walls and you have Lemus active, and you were thinking about chopping that forest down anyway because you were going to build a district there, do mm-hmm. it maybe a little bit before you want to build the district itself and get that extra little bit of production out of it.
0: Do you think it's an exploit? Because an exploit would imply that it's a mechanic that's you know due to programming and code in the game is not being used in the manner in which it was intended. I feel like this sounds like it's being used exactly in the manner in which it's intended.
1: I don't think it was intended to use the production overflow. Okay. I think that was an oversight by Phyrexis and I think that the Magnus ability uh, will uh, be limited in the way that it uh, doesn't influence production overflow. I'm not sure exactly how they will do that because... I don't think it is possible with the way they code up the game so far, but I think it, it this is definitely not the way they intended to use it because okay. you, you can build wonders so quickly, spam out settlers super fast and everything like that. It's it, if you don't do it and other people do, then you will have a significant uh penalty, and the AI, for example, doesn't use this.
0: Uh, fair enough. I guess that makes sense. It's something that the AI can't use, like because it requires a level of kind of subversive logic behind it, or something like that. Yeah. Maybe that is kind of the wall that makes it an exploit. I guess, yeah. The and AI I think that's
1: that's why most people see it as an exploit because. You could get humongous profits out of it, especially early in the game, which is where the difference is made usually. The AI won't be able to do this, which means that even on deity levels, you can uh, surpass AIs really quickly.
0: Fair enough. All right. Thanks for that. That's actually, that's, I'm going to, I'm not going to try and use the exploit in my Tamar game <laughs> here, but since we were talking about how for report back, we're going to do tomorrow, I think that that might be beneficial for production since we're talking about how this is going to be more of a walled off and insulated game. Um, my historical minute, uh, won't surprise you folks. If you know me, it, it concerns uh, Scotland and it concerns Robert the Bruce and his unique ability in this game, which is Bannockburn. Now for those of you who don't know your Scottish history, and maybe even those of you who know a little bit about it, the Battle of Bannockburn is a turning point in, well, in British history, not just Scottish history. Um, you may not know this, but the Scottish and English kind of have a history of, of combating each other and kind of have a bit of a divisive history. That might, that might surprise you to hear. Um, but in the uh, early 14th century, it was kind of reaching a point where it was clear that uh, there was going to be a massive conflict for independence. And really, there had been during the wars of Scottish independence at the tail end of the 13th century. But this all came to a head at the Battle of Bannockburn. The Scottish forces were led by Robert the Bruce. And in Civ 6 he's represented, I think, in a really positive way. And he's a very kind of imposing um, but genial figure. And historians largely characterize him in that way. I mean, he's obviously one of the most beloved figures in Scottish history um and he is generally recorded as being kind of this benevolent and good if you know military militaristic and and war focused uh leader but at the battle of bannockburn um you had a scottish force which is outnumbered by the english force by at least two to one and you also had a scottish force that was significantly um under geared i guess you could say the english had um quite fantastic regiments of longbowmen which they'd used in plenty of wars both against the scottish and against other armies to that point they had heavily armed cavalry they had infantry men that would have probably been um at least equivalently geared to the scottish if not using um uh, better implements both in terms of weapons and in terms of armor the scottish had an army that was um conscripted you know conscripted a lot from men from the north and not necessarily men, just from uh, Edinburgh proper, and so you had, let's just call it undergeared cavalry, and you had men who perhaps didn't have direct experience in hand-to-hand combat with uh, the English or with any other significant invading force. Um, that is always the case when you're when you're fighting on your land against an invading army. You tend to fight just that little bit harder. Um, and Bannockburn is interesting for a couple reasons, one of which is simply because, you know, wars and battles in that day and age, you tended not to last very long. You have to think about proportionally populations and strength. You're measuring armies in the, the thousands. and I'm talking about like four or five thousand was the strength of the Scottish army and the strength of the English army is estimated by historians to be upwards of about 12 to 13,000. So we're not looking at, you know, the Battle of the Somme where armies number in the tens and hundreds of thousands. Um, so the fact that the Battle of Bannockburn lasted two days is significant and unique in that sense. And I mean, I've been twice to the um, historical site that the National Trust has set up for the Battle of Bannockburn, and it's just, a, it's just an open field, quite frankly. Um, it's an open field surrounded by uh, a couple of rivers or barns. Um, And, you know, I, I always, when I'm there, envision this battle. You have the longbowmen in the rear flank of the English forces firing at what were largely charging light cavalry forces of the Scottish. Um, but through combination of sheer will, um, some expert maneuvering by Robert and his generals, they actually managed to pin the English into this really kind of boggy and swampy area of the battlefield where the horses were unable to maneuver and the men were really kind of, I guess, bogged down in this area. And so they were able to charge from the flanks onto this kind of hold up English force. Um, the Scottish forces were successful at really at routing the English forces um, casualties and losses for the Scottish forces. Most historians put at only about one tenth of their force, whereas the English lost close to half of their force in this battle. Um, Robert really was a fantastic military commander, not just for his bravery and his strength and prowess on the field. He defeated an English Lord in hand-to-hand combat before this battle. They basically charged at each other on their horses and Robert very deftly kind of ducked underneath this guy's um, sword swipe and cleaved his head in two with an ax Um, which really, I guess, would kind of get your men hyped if you saw your leader do that. Um, But he and his generals just did a fantastic job of uh, maneuvering their men around the English and of successfully defeating what was a professional English force that was led by Norman knights and by generals from all over England. So following the Battle of Bannockburn, the English were forced into, um, after a few more successive battles where the Scottish were uh, successful at clearing out english and um, anglo-irish forces from the territory the english were forced into signing the treaty of edinburgh and northampton in which the english crown recognized full independence of the kingdom of scotland and acknowledged robert the bruce and his heirs and successors, successors pardon me as rightful rulers of the kingdom so it was a seminal moment in scottish history the scottish had been fighting for independence for a long time, but like they had been fighting pitched battles against the English for independence for the better part of about 50, 60 years by that point, and it's a celebrated moment for that reason. And so, its utilization in um, in Civ 6 as kind of focused around this idea of ba- uh, wars for liberation is really cool. And Firaxis has done a really fantastic job of that. Um, if you're ever in Scotland, which of course I encourage you to do, um, you're likely to be in Edinburgh or Glasgow go visit the site of the Battle of Bannockburn. It's about a two-hour drive north, north, it was northwest, I think, from Edinburgh, so northeast from Glasgow. And it's just this really kind of um, beautiful, open field that the National Trust has set up, a lot of neat little monuments around, and they have these little cairns in the middle of the battlefield and stuff. And it's just a really kind of cool place to visit. Um, and you can learn a bit more about uh, a battle that was important to, um, I know the legacy of my family and of my people, and really the legacy of Britain on a whole. So yeah, that's my historical several moments. I think <laughs> that wasn't that, was, that wasn't just one moment, but I I tend to get a little. Uh, I tend to get a little off, not off topic, but get a little excited about talking about these things that I know a fair bit about. So I hope that was interesting, Vauder. I hope I didn't ramble too much.
1: No, I actually find it really interesting. And it also like made me look at uh, Robert De Bruce's ability uh, and Bannockburn uh, and it also especially what you said but you always fight a little bit harder when you're on like your home territory and everything like that. Yeah. It also yeah. made me wonder like why didn't they go for something like that 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 when they are on uh, inside your civilization borders, you get extra strength or something like that. We've seen that before. So, Is yeah. there
0: a SIF that has that? I feel like there's a SIF that does have that. Is I there think
1: ability so see? as well. And If not right now, then there has been a SIF that had that. Because I know, for example, that Ethiopia had it in SIF 5. But right. I'm not certain about this uh, iteration, to be honest. But that, that would fit, yeah. I think.
0: It would fit. Yeah, it would fit for sure. But one of these days, you're going to have to do a historical moment with some Dutch history for us because I just I do not know enough about Dutch history and I would love to learn a little bit more from you and from what you know for that. So maybe one of these days, we'll swap it and you'll do a historical moment and I could do a strategic tip. That might be fun.
1: Oh, that sounds that sounds like a great idea. We should definitely do that.
0: Cool. All right. Um, is there anything else you can think of here? Anything else that uh, that we've been missing or that we wanted to talk about that that might kind of be... Peaking your interest right now, in the tip of your tongue?
1: No, I think uh, we covered it all for today, and uh, I'm gonna get ready to play my game as tomorrow.
0: Perfect. Um, And like we said, I encourage you guys to uh, follow along with our report back segment. We're gonna post about it on uh, the subreddit. I also encourage you, of course, to follow uh, Pendon's ongoing monthly Sidcast challenges, and I think that we're gonna have an update on the recording of a separate episode for that. Um, maybe even next week. So yeah, keep up with that, guys. Um, like I said, we're gonna obviously try and do this every week, and you know this this ran pretty smoothly. So we'll see where we're sitting at next week. Um, we'll talk about our experience with our game with tomorrow. We'll talk as we're coming to the end of April here. I think we'll probably talk about the Sidcast Challenge and our our rundown of that next week. Maybe even touch on uh, what we might want to do for the next months. Um, As always, follow us on reddit, reddit.com slash r slash civcast. If you have anything to contribute, anything you want to say. I loved some of the interactions we had last week um, after Kyle posted the episode. I saw that a few of you guys were very complimentary. And thank you for your kind words. Thanks for sticking with us. Um, Keep posting. Keep letting us know what you want us to talk about. If there's segment ideas you have, let us know. Um, And we'll keep just trying to gear this show show towards what we think you guys want to hear, because that's what we're here for. We like talking to each other. We like talking about this game. But ultimately, if we're just talking about random crap, you guys might not tune in every week. So if you got stuff you want us to talk about, I don't know, let us know. And we'll see if we can integrate it into the show as best we can. Um, Beyond that, thanks for listening. Hit the subscribe button. And until next week, I don't believe in astrology. I'm a Sagittarius, and we're skeptical.